Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast, coming to you from our apartment at Cannes. It's me, Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, with Ann Thompson sitting just less than two feet away from me, so we're close to the mic. And how exciting is that? We have been in person to do this podcast in recent times in a rooftop in Tribeca, but it's got nothing on the experience of being back here. How are we you feeling are about so it, Ann? I'm so happy to be here. And by the way, uh, true confessions. Eric and I have had a few glasses of wine. Okay, I had half a glass of red because I, I was pressured. I had two glasses of rosé, but it was Someone hours pressured me. ago. Someone pressured me. It was me. Terry Fremont. Yeah, it wasn't in. It was the head of the festival, and it was for a toast. And because we're toasting a lot this year, just being at this festival was fascinating because a couple of weeks ago, it felt like a hypothetical. It was like hard to really see the scale and complexity of, of a festival that's known for not just the volume of people here, but the complexity of being able to navigate it working in these times that are known for distancing. But two days and some change into it, it seems to be working. And what I've enjoyed about it is that we're seeing a lot of movies, we're seeing some good ones, some okay ones, all that kind of stuff. But Overall, the, the sense is that everybody's ready to get back to business and, and make it work. And that kind of positivity is a reinforcement of why these kinds of events still matter. So it needs to, the, 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 the mechanism needs to get back up and running. And yeah. this is really the most important uh, festival in that sense. So everybody's um, here. We have I mean, buyers here. We have distributors. It's quieter, but it's the it's usual about game. half as many people as yeah. usual and it's hotter it's summer so yeah. there's a sort of summer vacation vibe and tourists are um, around yeah you know, but it's not the big crowds at all and the theaters are are kind of empty uh not not empty but half full i was uh i was uh, at the todd haynes movie which is probably my favorite movie so far uh velvet uh, underground last night at the late night lumiere screening and the ushers were trying to get us to move to the center um, to sort of fill in some of the empty seats just for the visuals. But um, I, we don't want to give the impression that the Lumiere seems super empty. I mean... Well, that's the biggest theater. Yeah, and, it's and hard it to was, fill it sometimes. It, it, yeah, but, but you know, it's sort of nice. It means there's empty seats around and it's... And our, of course, our core uh, group of... It's like the families reunited. Yeah. You know, the film community family. Yeah. And we went to um, a party afterwards last night and mm-hmm. there was Matt Dentler from Apple who was very yeah. proud of his first film. Yeah, it was the first time that the Apple logo was on a canned screen and it was funny because this now no longer off the record joke that Thierry Fromeau made at the canned dinner right he said that you know we're celebrating the 120th year cinema or it's 125th some, uh, one, one of those it, it's, it's hard to discern exactly where the anniversary starts there but then he said, maybe one day we'll celebrate the 125th anniversary of Netflix. And then he got all flummoxed yeah. as, the, as the journalists he said, it's ripping off, out it's their off. phones. But it's yeah. out there, so we're not yeah. breaking the embargo. Yeah. But but the thing that's he then at, sat down at the table I was at and, and canvassed the table. He said, so what do you think? Are we going to do the Netflix? He was very proud of that joke. And I said, Netflix, why not Apple? Because it's true. The streamers are here. Amazon had the opening night film with Annette. Amazon has Val, the documentary. They have the Oscar Farhadi film. So it's not like streamers are out of the conversation. And, and the only reason Netflix isn't here, I mean, De Five Bloods was supposed to debut here with Spike last year, but it, of course, can didn't happen. Um, 
that was going to be out of competition, and it was fine. Everybody went along with it. Spike was going to be the jury president. This time, it was Jane Campion's movie that couldn't go uh, in out of competition. And why would you want a Jane Campion movie? She's the only woman filmmaker to win the Palme d'Or. She uh, there's two women actresses who shared uh, blue as the warmest color, or yeah. whatever. But she's the only director to win it. And and you're asking her to. To, to take her movie and put it out of competition? I don't think so. You know, I always enjoy the first thing that I observed at Cannes when I first came here is, is what a big deal competition is. It is. People come out of a movie, it, it's but there's nowhere else on earth, no other festival or curated event where people come out of, of the experience and they say, that shouldn't have been in competition or that should have been in competition film. And I love the debates about that. This year they added a section called Cannes Premiere, right? And they put some filmmakers in it who have been at the festival before. Who they would ordinarily be catering to by putting them, they all, they're criticized for this all the time, yeah. putting the same old auteurs into the competition yeah. and taking slots away from new filmmakers. So this is a good direction. But I also think it's, it's doing something else too, which is the reality is, generally speaking, the films they want in competition feel like bigger films. Like not bigger in the, like a production sense, but they, 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 they're making a big statement as opposed to say, let's say Andrea Arnold, right? She has Cow, this movie, Cow, today. it's a documentary. So she has always been a competition filmmaker, but her films, it's like American Honey, a very robust film, as opposed to Cow, which is a very, you know, quiet, small documentary about the life of a cow. I loved it, but to put that in competition, it might seem a bit strange in the context of the kind of noisiness that they want competition films to deliver. So it is fascinating. So Oliver Stone is in that section. Yeah. And, and, uh, Cornel Mondrusco right, has a film right. called Evolution there that's yeah. sort of based so, on play. So, so maybe these are movies that are quieter. And, and uh, by the way, I'm not as high. I, I, I think... I think that Cow is a very good movie, very, very riveting in its way. It takes you behind the life of a cow that, you know, you, you see them as you drive by. Uh, but you've never fields, seen them. But in, you don't see the whole life, you, the, the la vie entière. You never see them in post-coital embrace. No, well, that was cool, yeah. It was, it was so gorgeous. you see the whole thing. But but the um, but it follows Gunda. I'm sorry. It follows I Gunda. I thought Gunda was great, but I don't, I don't think that the Gunda super fandom necessarily needs to take away from the greatness of cow like there's room for multiple documentaries about the lives of animals that are on their terms but Gunda was much more interesting in the way it was done I think that they're very different movies in terms of the way that they're done Gunda sort of hovers around the life of many different farm animals in a way that is mostly sort of like the a, sow mostly yeah. the mother but is there a narrative who arc is being to that? separated from her piglets that's the last scene of the movie spoiler alert but is there a narrative arc to Gunda the narrative arc to Gunda is the same narrative arc as cow cow has I think more because you're actually watching this animal grow up but you know exactly you where it it's born. going to end you see it born and you see something at the end that that completes that cycle so you know, it's it felt a little bit more of a of an evolution to me. But in any case, we'll see what happens. It's an acquisition title. It could get out there. And the point is, is that there's some strong documentaries here. Uh, yeah. The story of film update called A New Generation by Mark Cousins is technically excellent. the opening film. 
it opened the festival in, in effect. And, and the reason for that was that Terry Fremo thought that it had a kind, it was made during the pandemic yeah. and it was, a, it offered a kind of transition from the pandemic. Yeah. It was a good sort of starting statement because it's, I mean, what I enjoyed about the story of film and new generation is that it's sort of like a summation of my festival experience of the past 10 years. Like he gets like every film in there. It's like there's Ari Aster, there's the souvenir, you know, then there he talks about Black Panther. I mean, it's like literally if you were on a retreat for the past decade and hadn't seen any movies, you could catch up pretty well this way. So that's a good sort of public service, whether or not it's a great movie. If you've never met Mark Cousins, he's a genial and delightful Irishman who lives in Scotland. <laughs> and, and his voiceover is very soothing. And he, he's, <laughs> I love listening to his voice. I just do. It's, it's like you're it sharing, all. you're like sharing the, the screen with him. And he's, he's very much in the present tense as you, as you look at the, at the movie. The other good movie, as we discussed, uh, is, is Velvet Underground. I keep saying it's just a great New York movie. Movie. Todd Haynes did something really amazing there where he took all this footage and he created these split screens that are very Warholian in a way, but also have a kind of avant-garde tradition to them. And, and so you're like looking at, you know, Lou Reed's face on the same screen that you're, you know, seeing footage from, you know, some other source and you're hearing voiceovers of different people. And it's a good overview. It's actually overview. very complex. He interviews John Cale. That's the central interview because, of yeah. course, Lou Reed is gone. Um, but, and the drummer, too. Yeah. And, and, and she's great. Um, I didn't realize she's the Maureen. one who sings. Yeah, the close, close the door. And and then Nico isn't in it, and, of course. Uh, but, but but you hear her voice yeah, a little bit. But it's it. But but the the real connection with Andy Warhol is detailed, and there's some old Factory Girls. One of them, surprisingly, is Amy Taubin. Yeah, of the well, Film Society. I fame. didn't know that Amy Taubin has a legacy in that. I mean, there that she has an, a Warhol screen test that I that I have seen before in another context. But she's a great voice in this movie to talk about. What people don't always want to admit with the nostalgia. Which is the Factory Girls was a diminutive name uh, yeah. to apply to the and, women. And the, the factory was, was pretty sexist overall. And Mary Warnoff is great in it, too. And yeah. John Waters. So I, well, here's what I appreciate about it. I don't think it's a, a perfect movie, and I think the ending's a little rushed in terms of what happened towards the end well, there. Well, they skip over but some But they do, and especially the falling out that Lou Reed had with Andy Warhol is not really detailed, but... I will say that I think because it's an Apple documentary now, they were selling this off of footage at Cannes in 2019. But now that it's coming to Apple, there's so many people who like have a passing understanding of what Velvet Underground, is, it, what you know, what that band represented, or they know like one or two songs. This is a great way to sort of bring people up to speed on the overall sort of evolution of their creativity and why they were such an important band in terms of reflecting so many other things going on. Well, that's the point. It, it captures a period of time that was very yeah. rich and yeah. very creative. And uh, and I, I think it's uh, I think Haynes was the perfect person yeah. to, to do it. And he did it in a very innovative, fun uh, way. It's, it's a lot of fun. And it's not the only movie that has some pretty wild footage, although I will say it's the best one to have Jonas Mikas footage in it. Because Jonas Mikas, you know, this was the last interview he really did. He was interviewed they, right there. He was like 96 years old when he did this. Credit to Christine Vachon, the producer, and of course, Todd Haynes, a long, long-term uh, producing partner. The, she said, Todd, get him now. And that was the first interview they did. Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah, was, he, was, he was a guy who was like always had his video camera around or his film camera and then his video camera. So 
you, you, I feel like on some level, there's probably a lot of what he captured that drives this movie, and it's a great tribute to him. But there's also Val Kilmer, who had been capturing footage for decades, and we should talk about Val, a movie that uh, basically, I mean, it's authorized. He has a producing credit on it, but I is would a, say authorized is a is 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 a, is a very uh, quote unquote. In other words, it's really Val Kilmer's vision of his own life. edited and and directed by other people who are executing his wishes and his family's wishes. This is very much of of a a, a reach for redemption on his part. Well, here's what I actually quite enjoyed about this movie is that because he had been filming himself for so long and it was never quite clear what he was trying to capture, he captured a side of uh, the sort of irony behind being an actor in Hollywood. This idea that you're gonna go out there and change the world with your convictions about performance, and then when you get big roles, those roles can't accommodate whatever you wanna do. Like when he's playing Batman or whatever, he's on the set for Red Planet trying to explain why the director is not in sync with his ideas, or probably the best moment when he's on the island of Dr. Moreau set, yelling at John Frankenheimer and trying to explain to him that he can't act because he doesn't know if John Frankenheimer's gonna quit the project. I think you get some insight into a process that we almost never see. So whether or not it's, it is authorized, it is, I think, a fascinating window yeah, into that side of the I business. I agree with you. This is a rare look at an actor from his point of view, uh, no holds barred in some ways. But there are, um, it's still filtered because people who knew him, and I mean, there's a lot left out. There, there. He was ill, so we learn about that. We learn yeah, about his family. He can't really talk now. We don't know what happened with Joanne Whaley, his his wife. Right. Know, he doesn't want to get into love. it. Yeah. Yeah. We we we. He, uh, there's some other stuff that's completely left out. But I mean, it, he was it a is Scientologist. A, uh, Christian he, scientist. He, he well, he didn't get. He, he, he. You told me this. Yeah. He, he wrote his he was, memoir, and that he that part of the reason why he got into that situation was because uh, because he didn't get proper uh, health care. But I also think that, um, that the, the thing about his situation where he lost the ability to speak is that it has forced him to be more reflective about how he didn't quite realize his potential as an actor. And it's a first-person movie. He narrates it, or his son reads his voiceover. And so it's okay for it to be his perspective because it's told in his voice. I wish I mean, he had been the one directing it. You know, well, had taken I mean, he's the never credit directed a movie. I mean, he wanted to direct a movie about Mark Twain. It never happened. That's in the that's movie. That's in the movie, so, yeah. No, th- you like this movie a lot. You get this movie more credit than I do. I, it's well made. I'm not saying it, Ben Kotner, a very respected documentarian, is the producer of this movie. And it's it's as good as it could be under these conditions. And, and it's coming to Amazon, and I think people are going to be fascinated by it. You know, it's a, he, he's got that nostalgia people. factor. It actually you know. makes people respond yeah. to, to the yeah, family yeah. side of the story. Exactly. Um, yeah. So l- let's double back because we haven't talked about opening night, and we haven't talked about some of the other movies that we've seen in, in the high profile ca- uh, section. So Annette. <laughs> crazy ass sparks musical adam driver jumping around playing i don't know Naked. like gg allen or something like that it's a wild performance he's 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 giving head while he he sings a love song and it's i i you know i'm a leos carax fan obviously and we get a movie from him like once a decade and i was super into the sort of chaotic swings of this this rock opera movie i also was 
it was obvious to me as soon as I saw it how much it was going to divide people. And the division around this movie, I think, has been really fun to follow because it's not like... It's not like a Lars von Trier thing at Cannes. It like is a little bit. I, I haven't felt that. I haven't felt like rage. I felt some people who were saying it didn't quite work. And then there are other people who are really passionate about the vision that's driving it. And I like that. Divide. I would give Lars von Trier more credit for being in control of whatever tone of craziness he wants. He's more exacting. In any of his movies. Yeah. He that's, knows exactly what he's well, and doing. He wants to push buttons in a more precise. explicit way. This is all over the place. This is meandering. The tone but is didn't not you enjoy controlled. that opening moment? Of course uh, song. I did. Everybody the loves opening the earworm. song is great. Um, there's a lot of great stuff in it. The actors are really good. I mean, you have to give Adam Driver credit, and all any actor who sees this movie will for for how fearless he is, how brave yeah. he is, and he and he pulls it off to a great degree. But then, how do you come to terms with a director making such basic wrong decisions? I'm sorry, very poor creative decisions about how he uh, puts together uh, an ocean wreck sequence uh, where a murder takes place, how he um, uh, handles the baby, which is, he didn't want CG. He didn't want puppets. Oh, I really like uh, that. Anima animatronic I, I puppets. Love that. That so he so... has this crazy thing that because he, he wants the actors to actually embrace this 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 child who has to sing on a big stage and so there he talked himself I could see what he did he talked himself into a corner of what he couldn't do and then all he thought he was left with where I think other directors would have understood that some blend of CG and reality would have worked better. No, I think the wooden baby is so effective because of exactly what you're talking about it's very strange artifice for a movie that's all about someone completely trapped in his own reality. That is what that movie, and I don't want to spoil the last scene, but the last scene is the ultimate wake-up call about what happens when that reality ends and somebody realizes how badly they've screwed up. It's a movie that people, I think, will come back to and talk about. And again, an Amazon movie that people will watch because of Adam Driver. And it and will be the last of its kind. <laughs> but I think, Amazon, but, but I was going to just it's the say, last gasp of the Ted Ho. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, period. I, it would be nice and if I they leaned think, into this, uh, but they won't. We're going to see anything uh, like that coming out of there again. But but the but the point is, yeah, they got their opening night. They got their movie stars on the red carpet. Uh, Adam Driver flew in and flew out because he was working on White Noise. The he didn't even do the press conference. Movie. But yeah. he did light up a cigarette during the standing yes, ovation, which yes. was about was a, a, a real power move yeah. on opening night. So we got that. We've seen a couple and competition movies. it's not movies. an Oscar contender. Hello. Well, what about original song? So may we start? The, the best earworm of the year so far. That is a catchy and song. And Edgar Wright made that documentary about the Sparks Brothers. The, the So, you know, they're sort of now in the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, so but the music is very repetitive. It, it, so. It's really not that good. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't wait to continue to argue about this movie when it comes out later this summer. But another movie coming out later this summer is uh, Stillwater, which I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of arguing about because it's not that kind of movie. It's not like it's not like something that's going to generate a lot of conversation in general. But it brought Matt Damon back to the red carpet with Tom McCarthy in a very I think stable drama overall. I but, used the word you know, solid. Solid. So yeah. stable and solid are not, you know, um, too dissimilar. They're they're not they're not uh, effusive uh, no. praise. So it, this is one of those movies that's really good. 
and 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 quite dramatic and and you 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 jump into it and you want to know what's going to happen and Matt Damon gives a great performance as this Oklahoma every yeah. man it's one sort of, those... of a fuck up who's trying to <laughs> redeem himself. Well, it's a, it's one of those risky performances where at first you're like, uh oh, he's doing he's like the poverty again. porn thing. Yeah. But but I realized about halfway through, I was like, okay, now I actually buy him as this character, and the the plot is pretty compelling early on because he's got this daughter who's in jail in France and he's trying to get her out and doing all these things that she doesn't know about that are very dangerous. Uh, I thought sort of halfway through it got a little messy in terms of some of the plot twists and he t- he goes to a certain extreme that I didn't totally buy. Well, the but... daughter at one point says that he is um, incapable of not fucking up and so is she. And that's actually the center of the movie. I think. Yeah. I mean, Abigail Breslin plays the daughter. We do get to hear her speak French quite a bit, which after hearing Jodie Foster at the opening ceremony speak French, I'm She's like, all right, so it's catching beautiful. on. Everybody's She's so doing beautiful, it. Jody. All, the, all these American actors want to impress uh, want to impress the Europeans. But I thought she was maybe not totally convincing in this role, Abigail Breslin. She was, I was good. I had, I I had some mixed feelings about her. Um, she, was, she was obviously a troubled kid. And, and, you know, he had been an alcoholic and he was trying to clean up his act. And he was growing as a, as a person. That's what I liked most about yeah. it. It's about how being in another culture in a strange uh, culture can, can open your eyes and open your heart and change you. And I thought that was the most optimistic thing about the movie. So that'll come out and I guess, you know, Damon sells a movie. It's it's the kind of film where it's like, it's it's not for everyone, but it's very approach. It's very accessible. I mean, there are non-movie buffs I could show it to. And here's they, the thing. They would this, be okay with in it. the pre-pandemic world, I could imagine this made focus features. So uh, they, they have the ability to go wide. They have the ability to go platform with an art film they have the ability to push an oscar campaign if they want to this is coming out in july which is not conventional oscar time it is you're using can as a launch pad for this uh movie uh and it makes sense because it played really well here yeah um and i would say uh that they uh could have had a big theatrical between the coasts kind of theatrical, I mean, a yeah. really successful movie. Yeah. And now I don't know what happens to this movie. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating question. It's it's, it could be a weird, uh, uh, it could go well. I, I could see people really liking I, it. I want to, well, as we're recording, we haven't seen the, the range of reviews. Right. And, I, and then there'll be another wave of reviews when it comes out. I don't expect them all to be huge raves. So that's a challenge because it is, it is sort of a movie that would need a lot of enthusiasm around it. It's nice to have a strong Matt Damon performance to go see, and the the story is somewhat compelling. It's not it's not a thriller, but it's almost like something like that in the sense that you can have sort of it's 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 very engaging. It's it's not like a, a passive sort of no, depressing movie. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is Tom engaging. Tom McCarthy's a good writer and a good director, and the it certainly is best directing and Scott since Spotlight. Cotin from uh, Call My Agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah your favorite show. <laughs> so. As no, but uh, honestly, Matt Damon gives an Oscar-worthy performance. It's just that I don't know if it survives the onslaught of material that's coming this fall. So as we're recording, we're actually really early on in the festival, and a lot can change. That's the fascinating thing. It's like when we convene next week to record, we could be talking about so many different movies. The competition has barely gotten started, but it's a fascinating jury. Spike Lee, who was chosen last year, 
finally gets to be the head. He's the first African-American director of the jury, but also he's Spike Lee. And I think he's an awesome choice because we know that, you know, this is a guy who makes movies in all these different registers, but he also is, is a cinephile and he's got very engaged kinds of sensibilities, but he's surrounded by other really fascinating directors like Clever Mendoza Filho, who had Bakurao here just a couple of years ago. And, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, the Atlantic's director, Maddie Diop. Uh, you can tell who, that they're already yeah. bonding. These are these are these are really Maggie amazing, Gyllenhaal risky directors. Is, and Maggie Gyllenhaal, who started directing there. stuff. Yeah, yeah. She's she's also she's a she's also a real serious kind of and Melanie uh, Laurent viewer of uh, Inglorious Bastards fame. Yeah, sometimes I feel like there there you could slip in somebody in the jury who might be you know impressive on paper but their sensibilities might be at odds with people and that can throw off the rhythm. But I think in this particular case, what you're going to see is that there's going to be some really complex choices made and that makes it super unpredictable because every juror member gets one vote and they're going to watch two movies a day for 10 days. But remember that there are more actors and more women on this journey than ever Rameen. before. Uh, Tahar Rahim. Rahim. So, so uh, the... the, the Women, Melanie Laurent, and the the actors tend to lean into emotion. This just this is just my observation over the years. So we shall see. Yeah, I mean um, the thing is, we as we're recording, we haven't seen a lot of these competition films yet. I mean, Annette was a competition film, but there's a lot more to come. We've got Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. We've got you know Sean Penn's Flag Day. I did see Ahed's Knee from Narav Lapid, who won Berlin with his last film Synonyms fascinating, angry film about uh, a, a, a Israeli filmmaker sort of struggling with his feelings about censorship and, and uh, military service and so forth, but not for all tastes, obviously. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating watch, but it's, it's, a, it's a one that I, I have to assume will incite a lot of different reactions. Uh, Joachim Trier's film from Norway, The Worst Person in the World, uh, he is a, a you know a revered director who makes these very layered kind of dramedies about you know creative young people. That's a film that I think could be a, a kind of quote unquote consensus film, and I, I feel like we're going to start looking for those sort of access points as we continue to talk about the Palm contenders. Still to come is uh, Bergman Island, Mia French Love. Dispatch, uh, Benedetta, the Red Hogan Rocket film. from Sean Baker. Yeah. So Titan from Julia DeCarno, who did Raw. That looks nuts. We got the Nanny Moretti, Trey Piani, Francois Ozon. People seem to really like yeah, his new movie, well. although we haven't seen it. And then Oscar Farhadi is always, uh, always seems to, to be uh, appreciated. Always good. So that, and, and even a pitch upon Weir Sathakul, whose name even you can pronounce now ah! because he's so popular. <laughs> so And those films, some of those are screening really late in the festival. So... Usually, I mean, I, I used to think when they're late in the festival, it was like, that's a value judgment. But the truth is, you really don't know this year because everything came together so last minute. It could be that someone's not totally done, or it could be for some other reason, like they just don't have enough space to show all these movies at the, stop, at the start of the festival. Well, the other thing that's fascinating this year is that because of the timing of Cannes in July, you have uh, someone like Eugene Hernandez from the New York Film Festival basically 
uh, just finishing up his programming. I mean, he has to go back to New York and announce right uh, right away. And so that's going to be interesting. What will their opening night and, and the Centerpiece Gala and closing night be? Um, what are they going to... They usually pick up quite a few films from Cannes. So, so what will happen? Um, and then, and then he, you know, uh, then we're right into the fall festivals. Yeah. We're, we're, and we still don't know what's going on. I mean, Venice has had a sort of lucky streak of being uh, spared, you know, the grim realities of, of, of the COVID virus. They, they well, got they away with it, it last year. And, it, and they did it. And, they, and they're they doing did it. it again. Yeah. And, and, and somehow poor Toronto has been the opposite. It's yeah, just well, been, they're at know, the mercy of, of their, the situation of with the border and quarantining yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. And so a lot of people here have been asking questions about that. They're wondering, so what is the deal with Toronto? Telluride is going to be a big deal. You know, there's all these expectations. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they evolve because as we've all learned in the past year, you can't make any assumptions about three, four months down the line. I'm also hearing that the uh, once um, genial and friendly relationship between Telluride and Venice has devolved into something more competitive. I mean, the thing is, when you have... Talent. Yeah, I, I have no doubt about that. I haven't heard that until you said it, but it makes sense because if you think about it, these festivals have different kinds of values in play. As nice as it is to think about everyone working together, that's just not really... the. It doesn't... Festival strategizing doesn't make that easy, especially if you're happening at the same time and part of your values derive from the kind of media attention that you get. So people want to have the first premiere of X, Y, and Z. So how do you find common ground there? They used to be able to work out it because Telluride would say, we're not having a world premiere. We're not playing that game. And then they would say, "Um, we'll work it out so that you're... We're debuting at exactly the same time as you are in Venice. They well, have we'll ways call it a surprise screening or whatever. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. something like that. But I'm sorry to hear that's devolving. Yeah, it's too bad. I do think that people should stop being so obsessed with those things. Like the year that New York Film Festival opened with the favorite after it had already played at a bunch of other places, they sold out and they got good press and it was fine because it was a great movie and everyone was happy with it. And frankly, just because can you know, or one of these festivals is like timed in a certain way and and wants to have these movies when they're ready to launch in a certain kind of way it does not mean that that has to rub off on everyone else the world premiere game is probably the worst thing for I film for festival more. culture it's just that there's no easy solution to it right now especially when we have so many people who just want to come back in a big kind of way so the chaos will continue and on and next week We'll have a chance to talk more about all this stuff because, as I said earlier, we're going to see so many other movies and it's just so unpredictable. And I just have to say, I'm just so glad that we're here. We're in a new apartment. We got a lot of space. We got air conditioning. In spite of all the complexities, we're spitting into tubes every two days. But somehow it kind of feels like it's working. And, you know, if people are still quarantined, maybe in different parts of the world or whatever, you know, I, I hope that everyone's staying safe. But I will say that it does feel to me like we're moving in a really positive direction in terms of the world that we left behind. And it feels like it's really starting to happen now. The other thing we can talk about next week, because I've been doing some interviews with the, the distributors who are here, and, and they, they are, at least to me, presenting a very united, optimistic front about the return to theaters. Yes, yeah. yeah. Of course, when these movies that they're presenting come out, we shall we'll see. see. So TBD. Well, Anne, let's go to some parties and uh, I'll cut you off if you have too many. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm the one who cut you off tonight. <laughs> On the record. <laughs>